Welcome, everybody, to this New Mexico in Focus podcast edition for Friday, December 20th, 2019. Just two Fridays left to go in the year and in the decade. We hope you're having a great one. I'm sure it's really busy right now as you get ready to host family or go visit family. We hope you spend a little time with the show, can take it with you as you go along and get rid of all your chores and everything else that you need to do. I want to let, tell you about the show this week and start by filling in the blanks on our line panel this week. It's a good one. We've got former state senators D.D. Feldman and Diane Snyder. We've also got a regular here on the line, Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group PR, and Dave Mulryan. He's the founder of Everybody Votes, brings a lot of great energy to the table. We've got some great topics for them to dive into this week, starting with the news of the week, that is the impeachment of President Trump by the U.S. House. And we kick it off by starting with Congressional District 2 uh, Representative Sochil Torres-Small and her decision at the 11th hour to vote in favor of impeachment for the president. We'll talk a lot about that and what that might mean for her re-election campaign, plus a whole lot more. Then we get into a New York Times article that talked about some of the challenges for chili growers in New Mexico, particularly with the drought and some workforce issues. And so there's a lot of great discussion there about what the state can and should be doing to make sure this signature crop is a success long into the future. And we don't relinquish that chili title crown to anybody else, right? And then lastly, the other hot topic for those of us here in Albuquerque, that is the Albuquerque Rapid Transit, those buses. The crash count since they launched the new buses on November 30th up to 10 as of the end of this week. Seems like just about every day you hear about another one. And so there's a lot of discussion about the rollout and some of the uh, blame to go around on this situation as well as what maybe the city could still think about doing to improve safety and just understanding of this new system. So terrific show. And also we've got a really interesting interview, especially if you're a fan of Frontline. You may remember a couple years ago they had a wonderful documentary that was called Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. Just a fascinating story about the only bank that was charged after the financial crisis of 2008. This was a family-owned business, Abacus, uh, in Chinatown there in Manhattan, New York. And the family pulled together, they fought the charges, and they actually won on every count, all the counts against them. I think there were 80-some ended up being dropped. And this Frontline documentary follows along through the court process, uh, and it's just a fascinating tale. Two of the daughters, uh, Vera Sung and Chantrell Sung, we're here in Albuquerque earlier this fall for the Chinese Film Festival here in town. We were lucky enough to get to sit down and talk to them about what they experienced, not only of going through that court battle, but also being part of a documentary in that filming process, what that was like for them. So it's just a really fascinating story, worth your time. We hope you'll listen to it. We also hope you'll reach out to us, let us know what you want us to talk about in future weeks, what you like about the show, what you don't. We'll take it all, and you can do it in so many different ways, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. Find us any of those places, at NM in Focus. You can also email us at NewMexicoInFocus at NMPBS.org. Send us snail mail, however you want to do it. We want to hear from you, good, bad, or ugly. Again, happy holidays to you all. We'll see you for one more show in 2019. We've got a lot of great stuff in store there, too. Have a great week. Funding for New Mexico and Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico and Focus, why a small family bank in Manhattan was the only bank criminally prosecuted in the 2008 financial crisis. We actually thought probably naively that they were there to help us uncover this potential wrongdoing, but then at a certain point we realized that they were coming after the bank, that the bank was actually the target. Plus, the line discusses the political implications of impeachment. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. The art line has seen 10 crashes to date. At first blush, it appears the urge to turn left and across those bus lanes is the problem. So what's the best solution? We'll debate the possibilities. Our chili is deeply wedded into our daily lives. We take for granted the bounty that's one of the blessings of living here, but chili growers just had a hugely challenging year, and there's more possibly on the horizon. We start with impeachment. Here's the line. 
The headline is clear. The U.S. House of Representatives has impeached President Donald Trump. Now, while the U.S. Senate seems certain to keep the president in office here at home, the political impact is most keenly measured in the effort by Xochitl Torres Small to keep her seat as a Democrat in the 2nd Congressional District of New Mexico. Now, Ms. Torres Small voted yes on the Articles of Impeachment, and that's where we'll start our line discussion today. Joining us, we have line regular and principal of the Garrity Group, Tom Garrity. Diane Snyder's here. She's a former state senator and line regular, also with us. One of her colleagues in the state's upper chamber and another line regular, former state senator Dee Dee Feldman returns. And rounding out the table, line guest Dave Mulryan, founder of Everybody Votes. Thank you all for being here. Tom, Representative Torres Small was in a bind, certainly. What do you make of how she presented the case for a vote? And I'll remind, she penned an op-ed in October, late October, sort of hinting where she was going to go here with this vote. How was it handled at crunch time, though? Well, you know, she did what she, what in her heart she had to do. Right. And uh, you know, the the second congressional district is a very tricky district. Uh, it has traditionally, in recent history, mm -hmm. uh, been controlled by you know the Republicans, uh, Republican Party. Mm -hmm. um, there have been a few blips in that particular uh, scenario where you have seen Democrats be very successful. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, I think it was just the, it is, it is a step. I don't think anybody's surprised or shocked by it, mm -hmm. uh, but it is something that is, uh, uh, you know, to be taken into consideration once you get past the primary period, especially mm -hmm. for depending who the Republican is. That's a very good point there, and Didi, you know, interestingly, we look back at the history of the district, recent history, which <laughs> went to Trump by 10 points, right. and Romney won it against Obama by 7 points. I mean, this is the thread the needle Tom's talking about here. Oh, so yeah. again, the same question, has she handled this in a, in a way that could work out for her politically? Well, I think she's a real profile in courage. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the Republicans are already attacking her anyway. Mm -hmm. They've spent $350,000 on these ads that we've all seen. They've been going for a while. And they're going to continue yeah. no matter how she voted. And so I think she voted her conscience and I think she did the right thing. Um, some of us may remember Harry Teague, mm -hmm. uh, who oh, was Harry a Democrat yes. who was <laughs> in power for two years yep. uh, after the Obama sweep. Mm -hmm. um, and he had a he had a moment too, and the moment was whether to vote for the Affordable Care Act mm -hmm. or not. Mm -hmm. And he did not vote for the Affordable Care Act, and he was defeated anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, I suspect uh, that that was on uh, Sochi's mind as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but doing the right thing uh, to me. Um, is it has its own rewards. It has its own legacy. Hmm. Um, and I think that we should be proud of her for doing this. I like that. It does have its own reward, doesn't it? It's a very interesting observation there. That's very cool. Senator, I mean, we're talking about protecting a seat here. She's now super vulnerable. She had to go there, as, as Senator Feldman mentioned voter conscience, but now the real fun begins. And so, how does she defend at this point? I, I don't think she has a way to defend other than standing up and saying, this was what my conscience told me. She has to very clearly separate herself from Speaker Pelosi, that Speaker Pelosi didn't con her into doing it, okay. that, that, she has, that she was independent. This was her decision to mm -hmm. make because there's a part of me that uh, when she won, mm -hmm. I looked at her and I listened to all the commercials she had had and the things she had said, and I said to myself, this may not be too bad. She wants to work independently. She has publicly said mm -hmm. uh, and she, that she would work with the president and any, anyone, Democrat or Republican. And she had some pretty good ideas, uh, certainly not conservative views, but ideas on the border situation, mm -hmm. which is yeah. so, so much of her, yeah. her district. And I there. just thought right. this may be, end up being okay. And now, to me, everything that she's done well, like like the medic, uh, the prescription drugs, sure. and uh, the border, the not, it's, what are we calling it nowadays? Anyway, the well, that's was a bipartisan yeah. bill that she sponsored right. to enhance technology right. and scanning and, devices right. at I, the border. My that's point right. is, I'm so afraid that's going to get lost. That the whole campaign will be attack and her vote right. on impeachment yeah. instead of us really discussing 
issues. Mm -hmm. You know, Dave, when you think about it, her own timetable, she held as long as she could. She was not a wild-eyed, right. Trump's got to go, talking right. last summer or yeah. even before right. that. You know what I mean? Right. Like she, Deborah Hallam. It, or like, you know, right. it just, it did. Does, does that help her at, at, in any you know, you know, I think that, look, she is, you know, a, a, a member of the Democratic Party in good standing. She was going to vote for impeachment. Mm -hmm. But I think that, that what the Democratic Party should do is it should be well organized down south. There's like 12 or 14 counties down there. It's a huge district. It's enormous. The, the, the yeah. payback should be, we'll provide you with volunteers and we'll provide you with a strategy. But also Democrats have vulnerable um, candidates in a number of congressional districts. They need a message that can work that can say yes we voted for impeachment but you as the Trump voter vote for me because I felt this was the right thing to do are the Democrats capable of coming up with that message remains to be seen but they should not wait I mean we should have the message we should get the message out we mm -hmm. should make sure that we have mm -hmm. you know all of the things that a political party should provide to these candidates who voted their conscience and may be vulnerable because of it do mm -hmm. not wait too long to do that but yeah. demographics mm -hmm. may be on her side absolutely demographics as time goes goes on and redistricting right. occurs right. may be on her side. Right. Doniana County is growing. Right. Uh, that's where the Democrats are. Um, and uh, that may help and, her and, a lot. And, you know, when the young voter has pretty much been clear, Tufts did a, Tufts University outside of Boston did a study. 67% of the first time voter in the 2018 midterms voted Democratic, no matter how they were registered. So knowing that that demographic bulge is there, they should play to it. I mean, there's no question. Those are her, that's where her assets lie in yeah. the young. Mm -hmm. You know, anticipate a question I have for Tom. When you think about it, the national scene, people have hardened by the polls, you know, from impeachment. Yeah. Yes. Those who were opposed, still there. Those who were, you know what I mean? Each, no, no side has moved. I'm curious where CD2 is at. I'm not asking you for an answer, but I'm, I'm right. you know what I mean? I, I, do you think it might trend with national polls or is it more fluid down there as we're you talking know, then? Great question. You know, I think when you look at where the national polling is on right. the issue of impeachment, it's basically you have that 50-50 divide with about 10% in the middle. Right. And I think, you know, research uh, will will give you the kind of uh, results that you go out to find. Right. Uh, and so, you know, as you kind of look at, well you know, the, the larger question is really what's going to happen with that middle voter, that independent, that moderate. That right. conservative um, Democrat. They are really, yeah. I mean, so so they are really not interested at all in the whole impeachment narrative. In fact, amongst those, according to Gallup and McKinsey, two, mm -hmm. different, two, two different polls looking at two different groups, um, really have identified that that moderate independent voter is really disenfranchised by the whole impeachment discussion. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily leaning right or left, yeah. but just said, you know what, we're tired of it. And we're actually seeing it also in the coverage from the news media. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember when, um, you know, the, the last impeachment uh, with, uh, with President Clinton, mm -hmm. um, you had all the primetime shows that were, you know, all news, ABC News, NBC News, CBS, they all had primetime analysis right. of what was happening. Yeah. Instead, after the, uh, after the impeachment vote, uh, you had things like um, Ellen's Greatest Night, Survivor, and <laughs> yes. the yeah. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, I mean, it's Points. funny, but it's really sad <laughs> because three of Three stark narrative. examples, yeah. right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but she so was able to pull those conservative Democrats that yep. traditionally yes. vote Republican mm -hmm. in, in that district. And that may be where she loses some of the vote mm -hmm. that she got this last time. You know, Didi, I'm, I'm curious, to follow what Senator just said there as well, um, is she her own thing down there? And what I mean by that is, I'm starting to, when I consider her small, I just feel like she's her own sort of entity. It's not she's hard D or, or moderate D. She's just her own person, her own she thing. She is. You know, she, she uh, arranged a field hearing there oh, on yeah. border uh, issues. That oh, was yeah. a huge deal when you think about what might come out of that conversation. Almost seems like she's carving her own thing oh, out down is. there. I recently got a Christmas card from mm -hmm. her and her husband, Nathan Small. Oh, yeah. And it was out in the middle of a field. <laughs> and uh, those, those two are real Westerners, and they have also some rural values that are not fake, uh, but they are uh, actually in their blood. Right. And I think that what she does with the rural urban issues mm -hmm. down there is really a key thing in terms of appealing to some traditional values, 
Yes, they may be conservative, uh, but they also have elements of, um, you know, individualism, progressive <coughs> self-sufficiency. Mm -hmm. And I think her and her husband it really embody those values. Mm. And I think the more they can play on that, and sp and as she's doing with rural health care, rural health care is, is really her yeah. issue. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, she is, it wasn't just a TV ad, but yeah. she was, she's working on it uh, and in a bipartisan fashion. Mm -hmm. Dave, one last question for you. What I put me in. Oh, Cook Political Report says it leans Republican by less than six. Well, the so thing, opportunity there? Uh, yeah. Some, I mean. For a Republican, I should say? I mean, we have two okay. points we have to remember. Donald Trump did not visit New Mexico for his health. He has said, I'm going to put New Mexico in play. We should pay attention. I mean, the man is very good at telling us what he's going to do, and he always does it. Mm -hmm. So I think that could have reverberations for Sochi. But the other thing to sort of counteract that is, let's not dismiss the economy in the South is booming. I mean, mm -hmm. I happen to know this because I was trying to buy billboards down there, and you can't even buy a billboard. Oh, wow. And because the oil companies are so busy, and actually, lawyers were buying all the billboards for workman's comp cases. <laughs> nevertheless, you know, the billboards were full. American I mean, and Sochi gets credit for that. That is a booming economy. Yeah. And, and so, you know, do not discount pocketbook issues. I Glad you got the point in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. In just a moment, we talked to two of the stars of the Frontline documentary about the only bank to be prosecuted after the 2008 financial crisis. Now, when the line returns, we're talking about a rough year for chili pepper growers. You know, the chili is an I you know, identity of New Mexico and save the chili, save the small farmer, save the small town. Right. That should be a goal. That okay. is government policy that I think is easily implementable. It's gonna cost some money, but everything costs money. Abacus Federal Savings Bank has the unique distinction of being the only institution to face criminal charges in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. But the charges against the small bank based in New York's Chinatown didn't add up. After spending months and millions to defend themselves, the Sung family's ordeal was documented in the film Abacus, Too Small to Jail, which aired on Frontline and was nominated for an Oscar. A decade after the crisis, the film informs how we view justice and responsibility. NYF producer Matt Grubb spoke with Vera and Chantrell Sung about the trial, the film, and life after acquittal. These defendants are charged with engaging in a systematic scheme to falsify and fabricate loan applications. The little-known story about the only bank prosecuted for mortgage fraud after the financial meltdown. At first, you think that they're here to figure out what's going on for us. We transition to, wait a minute, maybe we're the target. A family business caught up in a national crisis. I think Americans were upset that the security against which loans were made were often fictitious. And in Abacus, there was some truth to that too. And fighting to survive. Tom is not easy to be pushed around. And my girls, they're tough, smart, capable women. It's trying for us because it's our father's legacy, and he's passed that legacy on to us. Vera and Chantrell Sung, thank you so much for coming in and, and joining us. Thank you for having us. You bet, absolutely. Um, small Enough to Jail, that title, kind of a play on, on Too Big to Fail, um, and that's certainly kind of the way that the film was, was set up. Does it still feel that way to you, that, that dynamic? Definitely. Um, it, we always feel that the big banks are treated differently in a sense than um, the small banks. Um, and we often wonder if there's another crisis like we had in 2008. Um, we still have the big banks there. Small banks like us, um, you know, definitely are going to have a hard time weathering that. And the question is, is how would we be regulated? How, how will we respond to all of that at that time? Will we be, we are small enough to jail, essentially, big, big, to big banks are, are, are um, too big um, to fail. Sure, sure. Um, as this was going on, um, did it sort of seem to have that dynamic to you? I, I'm sure you were so in what was going on. I mean, this is something that took up years. Um, did, did you sort of recognize the importance of what was happening? Yes, and absolutely in terms of the prosecution itself, you know, we've always asked ourselves, why did this happen to us? And, 
you know, there are many theories. Was it a classic example of the big guy, big guy going after the little guy? Um, was it about politics, the district attorney trying to make a name for himself by being the first DA to indict a bank after the financial crisis? Um, was it about the fact that the collateral consequences to this community, the Chinatown community in New York, um, wouldn't be so great, uh, and therefore it would be a case that um, a prosecutor would feel they could go after um, and not have to suffer from the ramifications of that. So definitely that small enough to jail uh, type of framework or mindset you know, we thought about throughout the case. Um, we see a, a picture of the Chinese American community in New York um, that's a very tight-knit community, but also in some ways it seems to be like a, a community apart. Um, and, and maybe that's why it was seen as something that, that the district attorney at that time could go after. I mean, does, it, does that sort of resonate? Yeah, I mean, when, when you say community apart, you mean one that isn't as integrated into the rest. With the rest of society in New York, yeah. Yeah, we, um, for a long time, you know, my father, especially who's gained the trust of, a, of the community itself, has always felt like we need a, a bigger voice, a greater voice. Um, we have to be more unified. We have to get out and, and vote. And people have to know that, that we exist. Um, we are literally, you know, a foot away from the district attorney's office. The, the Chinatown uh, in New York, in Manhattan, is literally right alongside of um, the, the courthouse. And so, you know, it's been, I think, something that the community has had to work through um, in terms of making sure that we have a voice uh, and aren't forgotten. I don't know if you want you to. Yeah, I think we're making more strides now and trying to get more elected officials, being Asian Americans and representative of our community. It's a question of trying to get uh, people to pay attention to us and our needs and not to marginalize us. We constantly feel that way. Okay. Um, viewing um, the film, it, because it's happening in New York City, I think there's a tendency for people who don't live in New York City to think like, oh, this is like at the center of it all. But this was the local DA, and this is a small bank. Um, so it really sort of crystallized things because you were the only bank um, to, be, to be prosecuted as a result of the financial crisis. Um, when, you, when all this started and, and people at the bank started noticing that there was potential fraud or something going on, it was reported to regulators. But what you got back was not thanks. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, actually, it was a closing that I was doing, um, Matt, where I discovered the potentially that the loan, loan officer was doing something extremely inappropriate. And that's when I reported it to Jill, who's the, my sister, but also the president and the CEO of the bank. And she took it upon herself to actually stop the closing and actually fire him pretty much immediately thereafter. Um, and then we informed our regulators. We also informed Fannie Mae. Uh, the district attorney's office got a hold of this uh, matter because the borrower in this case filed a complaint against the loan officer, Ken Yu, okay. for taking money from her. When the district attorney's office contacted us, we actually thought probably naively that they were there to help us uncover this um, potential wrongdoing um, that the loan officer had committed. But then at a certain point, we realized that they were coming after um, the bank, that the bank was actually the target. Um, and as this is going down, you're working in yes. the district attorney's office. Yes. What was that like? It was completely surreal and um, really disheartening um, and, and frustrating because, you know, I was trained, I felt, by the very best in that office on how to be a good prosecutor how to exercise proper discretion. Um, you know, prosecutorial discretion is something that is very serious, and you hold the keys to both doors. If you don't have evidence to go forward, you don't, and oftentimes that might mean dismissing a case. If you do have evidence that you can prove a crime beyond a reasonable doubt, then you prosecute. But, you know, what I was seeing before my very eyes against my family and our business and employees in the bank was that these principles and ethics were not being followed and there were decisions along this entire five-year prosecution that um, just were being made, I think, um, you know, in terms of what the influence was from the outside, what the, what the media was going to show as opposed to what the evidence shows. And, and that was really, really frustrating. 
And this was a, a district attorney, Cy Vance, who um, came from a big legal family. He had just come into office, from what I understand. Um, there's a, a pretty striking scene in the movie where um, lots of bank employees are being paraded, basically perp-walked. Um, and did you get, what do you, I guess, what do you make of, of Cy Vance, looking back at it now? I mean, he's had some very profile things. He's looking into the president right now. He's trying to get right. tax returns. Um, he went easy on Jeffrey Epstein. We have a connection to that here in New Mexico. Mm. One after Dominique Strauss-Kahn. Sort of what, what do you make of, of him and, and yeah. the, this decision? Yeah, so this, this case, um, the investigation started very early on in his career as the district attorney in Manhattan. Um, I believe it was in early 2010 when they started investigating yes. Abacus. Okay. And that was actually January 2010 when he took office after 35 years of um, service from Robert Morgenthau. Um, and so it was very clear, uh, myself as well as my colleagues in the office felt like there was a marked change in terms of um, the influence that the press and the media would have on the office. The uh, Dominic Strauss-Kahn case was one of the earliest ones I remember before Abacus. Okay in which um, the uh, first deputy assistant DA actually went to the criminal court arraignment on that case against um, Dominic Strauss-Kahn to arraign the case himself. We would never have seen something like that under uh, Morgenthau. And so everyone thought, okay, this is interesting now. Like, what is, what's the district attorney's office perspective and viewpoint now on, on the press's role? And, and, you know, is that gonna influence decision at a higher level that are being made on these cases? Um, I personally felt that with the Abacus case, that was something where, you know, the, the DA was gonna keep that in mind. Um, the fact that no banks had been prosecuted or indicted after the financial crisis, and then he might see this as an opportunity to be the first one to, to do that. Sure. It, it seemed so obvious to us that it was a, um, it was orchestrated for the press to perp walk people like that, innocent people, people who have not been proven guilty by any means, strung together, never been arrested before, mostly women, um, right. to, to be um, brought down the courtroom like that. That was egregious in our opinion and really um, in, in many senses is a violation of people's um, rights, civil rights, to do that, especially since you are innocent until you're proven guilty. And then to have a huge press release and basically in essence condemn us for being the cause of the financial crisis, that also to us was astounding that he was using the press in such a fashion. It's like a hit and run. You're, you know, you're, you're already found guilty by all this press, and now no one remembers afterwards anything else, even if you go to trial, if you ever get to trial. They see those images. Yes, and that was, sure. yeah, and, and just, um, just to briefly add to that, in terms of, you know, this was just being done um, for purposes of that, that image, and, and like it was a stage, right? Because the, there were three uh, defendants who had already previously been arraigned. Um, their indictments were filed, unsealed, and they were already arraigned and exactly. let out on bail. And they were brought back for purposes of putting them in this chain gang. And that, that, that whole parade took place literally in the courthouse hallway where they had already set up and cordoned off a special area for the press to come. So you could just see this being sort of orchestrated as a spectacle. Um, sure. Yeah. And Usually lots of pains are taken whenever I watch that there's someone being arrested to cover their handcuffs because a handcuff literally makes people... It's prejudicial. Yeah, it's exactly. extremely prejudicial. Yes. Um, the, you, you see this happening in the film, and then you see sort of the family coming together. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the family dynamic. Um, as you look back and you watch the film, sort of what do you remember about that time? So I, <laughs> I remember we were extremely focused on the task at hand, right, and, and trying to make sure that this was our, our one opportunity now to come together and to fight for what was right and to have that opportunity in court to have that be known, we had to get this right. So we were very laser focused and um, I think as a consequence of that, we all became very united. Um, my whole family and, and Vera can add to this as well. We've always been extremely close 
<laughs> just in the way that we were raised, you know. With our um, little arguments here and but there. But I was going to say, <laughs> yes, lawyers, we all, we all have right. different personalities, you know, and, and, and fight a lot, as you can see through the film, um, and laugh a lot. But this really brought us all together. And um, I always remember Vera would remind us, even in the, in the darkest moments, just remember this time because this is the time that we have to really be together every day and and we may not ever have a chance to be together every day like this. And I see you're getting very emotional yeah. about it. I know, so when we see the film, each time we've seen it, today we saw it again um, and it really reminds of a, us of a very painful time and it, it does evoke a lot of emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. There was a, a, what comes through is a very clear sense of this is wrong, we're going to fight this. Um, did that play into the decision to allow Steve James and his camera teams <laughs> to come in and, and film all this? So that was an interesting decision that we had to make. I knew um, the producer, Mark Mitten, he had been a friend of mine for a long time. Oh, okay. And, then, but he hadn't been a pr producer of a film. He had worked with Steve James as a producer of Life Itself. Okay. And um, also a film, I think, that you know, PBS was involved with. Um, and after he'd done that, um, I knew Mark before he was even doing that. He was um, actually producing, he produced the second episode of The Apprentice. <laughs> oh, no that's, kidding. That's when wow. I, okay. that's how long we knew him. And he, he knew our family <laughs> as well. Um, but when the trial started, that's when he actually approached our family and said, um, you know, well, actually he said to me, I can't believe there is no press on this. You are the only bank uh, which has been indicted in the wake of the financial 2008 financial crisis, and there's no press coverage on this. Um, and so he's, he actually went and talked to Steve James and met, Steve James came over and met us, but it was mm -hmm. a hard decision as to, met, as to whether or not we would want it's intrusive to have sure. this documented and um, filmed, and especially yeah, since even we, just being a distraction, you know. Oh so, right. So being followed around by camera and like, you know, as it, as it was, it was hard to find enough hours in the day between our regular jobs and then finding this case. So that was another reason we were hesitant. Very hesitant. But then we did it. Then we did. Um, as a family come together and decided that, well, this is important and that it should be documented, even if we would lose, maybe even more reason why this should be documented. Sure. Yeah, there, there, oh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, there, there came a point in time where we realized, obviously, we were fighting this for our, our family business and, and the reputation of the family, but that this was a much larger cause that, you know, as to why we were doing this. It was for the community, also for what the, the criminal justice system is, stands for. And so I think that's why we felt like if you're innocent, the system should it should work, right? And so, and if it doesn't, even if the outcome is not in our favor, that in itself should be documented as well for the lessons that could be learned from it. Absolutely, and you make a point of, um, as a family, like we have to, we have to have everything. You know, we have to have not guilty on everything. They just need one thing to claim a victory. Right. Um, going into the courtroom that last, uh, was it an afternoon or morning when the jury came the back? Afternoon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and having that in the back of your mind. I mean, did you have to stand there as they listed all of these charges? Yes. Yeah. We we were seated, and the jury came down in, I think, two days because there were so many counts oh, and, okay. and there were three defendants. It was the bank as a corporation and then the two employees. And so the two employees were acquitted the first day, okay. which was good. That, that was good, right? Because their actual liberty um, was at stake. Okay. And that then, so that was a sense of relief yeah. once they were acquitted. And then it was the second day, the rest of the verdict started coming down but we were waiting for the, the final ones. And right. that, that, that was the afternoon we sat there and just, my parents We heard 80 some counts had to be read and the four lady had to read them out and we had to listen to that. Um, mm -hmm. And it had, then it had to be repeated again. Yeah. Yeah, they pull the jury and then they repeat um, what the jury. Okay. It, it's or a shame that, yeah, I they, mean, that the, what, we, I wish that this had been part of the documentary. It would have been so interesting if the documentary um, could have actually had scenes of that final day, but um, the judge was very fair. He said to both sides, um, you know, are you comfortable with footage in the courtroom? And either side was not comfortable with having camera in the courtroom oh, okay. for a number mm -hmm. of reasons. That's why you see um, 
these great sketches by uh, Christine Cornell. She okay. Did, yeah, to reenact the court scenes. Sure. But that uh, was my favorite moment of the trial. I bet. <laughs> I bet. At being a prosecutor, well, right, to have that many counts <laughs> right. acquitted, I knew what that meant for the And what it feels like to, to hear and, that on yes. the other side when they're yes. like, oh, this is completely going But anticipation, so. Chantrell, when the judge said, we have a verdict, oh. I do remember that. I, I thought <laughs> really? I was going to feel sick. Yeah. I really did. But at that point, you realize you've done everything you could. Yes. It's you over, yeah. yeah. There's that sense, yeah. too. Yeah. So after um, the film closes and real life comes back, how long did it take to sort of start feeling normal? Hmm. I'm not sure I <laughs> have felt really normal really? since then. Yeah. Um, it's hard to feel normal. Um, you don't feel normal because, um, much to my mother's surprise, the film was actually made. She didn't believe that the documentary <laughs> film would ever be made. So one year later, we find ourselves at the Toronto Film Festival, and they prepared um, the documentary. And that was one of the most, I, I, the, when we went to see it, because it's the first time we saw it in its full form. And I, I will never forget, I think there were 700, so 800 people in the audience, yeah. strangers who we did not know. And after the film was over, they stood up and gave a standing ovation. Yeah. It was wow. one of the most emotional moments because you've been living for so long with, you know, you're, you know, you're terrible, you've done all these awful things, you've been accused right. of all these things, then you go through a trial that basically takes everything from you physically, mentally, emotionally, um, you know, a, a, as well as bank-wise, business-wise. Sure. And now you win, and then you try to build back your business, and then you have a documentary film, and all these people finally see what happened and are actually on your side and, yeah. you know, applauding. You don't so get you, those applause in no, the courtroom, you for sure. Never, <laughs> you know, and so, and that's, so that's not a normal feeling. And, yeah. and then from there on in, um, and then getting the film getting Oscar uh, nominated was such a tremendous experience in and of itself. So grateful to Steve James, to um, Car Temkin, Motto Pictures, PBS, you sure. know, everybody involved with the film. So no, we haven't felt really normal. <laughs> normal is something yeah. completely different. Is this a new different? norm? Yeah. I right. don't know. <laughs> yes. Sure. Well, we've le we've learned so much from this experience, you know, and and that's I think the most important part. I think personally for me, it's still hard on a, a small scale. For example, just even walking by the DA's office, yes. where this was a job that I had wanted. It was my dream job, you know, and I often had thought about having a lifelong career there. Um, but, um, you know, I walk by the office, I know I have great friendships, lasting friendships from there, but I still have a little bit of PTSD when I walk by. But on a large scale, we've, we've grown so much. And um, as a family, we feel that even though something so negative happened, this is now, a, we've been given a platform, so to speak, to have a voice for, for, cha for positive change. And so we really try to incorporate that mentality into you know, our, our everyday now. And my sisters are extremely involved in, um, in a lot of community efforts in, in Chinatown now, as well as my father. And you know, this is something that we, we try to work on every day. That's great. Well, thank you so thank much you for coming in. Yeah. We really thank appreciate you. it. Okay, thank you. Yes. It was a featured article in the New York Times of all places in the title, quote, hard time for a hot commodity, the prized New Mexico chili, end quote. The article goes on to talk about how years of drought and other conditions have been threatening our state's signature crop. Chilies have to be picked by hand, as you know, and some farmers are finding trouble getting the help they need and some are turning to more reliable, profitable crops like alfalfa, watermelon, all kinds of other things. What would New Mexico be without a certified New Mexico chili and Diane? Have we been taking this situation for granted a little too long here? Is that part of the problem here? I, I very much agree with that statement, Jean. Yeah. I just think, oh my God, because I'm going, oh my God, I didn't realize this, was th that we have reached that That's right. bad a, a, a place. It's a shocking article, Yes, it, it was very shocking. Yeah. And particularly when you see the New York Times doing it about New Mexico. <laughs> right. But I look at it and it, one of the things that struck me in the article was mm -hmm. how families are cutting, I mean like, 75% of their planted area is being reduced mm -hmm. into their, right. their crop production. And then the other point was is that 
most of these are family businesses in many, many ways. That's right. And the young people aren't going into that's the scary. family business. Yeah, that's scary. So, mm -hmm. that's... I mentioned these other cash crops, pecans, right. that's our number one, right. you know, right. in the state. And you can't blame farmers for looking at a piece of land right. and saying, what's going to get me the most right. yield, literally, financially out of this situation? Right. Right. So how do we turn, how turn this around? I, I mean, mean I, I think, you know, one of the mm -hmm. things is everything that's going on in the country and in the state is mm -hmm. sort of contained in that article. We have a commodity, but we've branded that commodity. We've made it valuable. It has real value. Mm -hmm. And the question is, will the urban senators and Congress, you know, House mm -hmm. members come up with some sort of plan to help out a rural area, which I think they should. I think that we should look to preserve a family farm. I think that we should look to preserve a New Mexico brand. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, you look at the rural, rural New Mexico, we're very rural. You know, we have 33,000 farms or small ranches. You cannot pick those up and ship them off to China. Right. You know, that is an economic driver that we should maintain. Sure. And if we need to make some investment in that as, you know, taxpayers and we elect legislators, too, we should make the investment. I mean, I think it's a good, solid investment. And, you know, we should make sure that we, I think it's a brand and I think mm -hmm. it's a commodity worth protecting. We mm -hmm. should make it so that farmers can benefit from it because if it can only get bigger, more That's people right. seem to be liking That's right. chili. That's right. I mean, you know, someone once said only in New Mexico is as a hotness, a, you know, a, a spice or something. So right. we should continue <laughs> that. Well, the chili wars were no small thing in hindsight now when you yes. think about it. You know what I mean? This is critical yeah. for us. My, and Tom, go ahead, please. Just a quick oh, yeah. Absolutely. observation. My sister worked for a chef sister worked for the chili guy in Bernalillo oh, yeah. and she, she would come home talking about the chefs she talked to in China or yeah. London or, or Florence or oh. New York City or Chicago right. and, and how they bought their chili mm -hmm. from this small little company in Bernalillo, New Mexico and they were buying Hatch chili. Yeah, it is, so, it's something. We have to protect this. And tell me, when you think about the one piece of the article that really distressed me, just really, oh, I had to put it down. I actually walked away from it for a second. Is the price pressure for our growers? They cannot increase their prices due to a lot of different things Mexican competition, mm -hmm. labor costs, water costs, all that kind of stuff. This puts them in a very, very difficult position when you really think about it. There are very few commodities where you're sort of sealed like that right. and you can't push. You see the problem? It, it's, it's very hard for these guys. Yeah, and having mm -hmm. done a lot of work with companies that are engaged in the chili industry, you know, mm -hmm. I think that any type of assistance that the state can provide to protect, uh, it's going to be very complex, though, because you have, right. you know, you have three variables, water, weather, and labor. And you, can, you get con to control one of those, labor. You don't control the water. You don't control the weather. And uh, so, you know, perhaps that's where that key is. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, and as far as the alternative crops, I just have to say that you mm -hmm. know, the New York Times article was a great wake-up call, but watermelon is not an option for New There's just not enough water. Yeah. Okay. Thank but, you. Uh, the, uh, mm -hmm. But onions, a, a great rotation with that particular crop. Right. Um, as far as the the uniqueness of the New Mexico chili, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of uh, great competition with Colorado, which is great. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I learned through that process is that the Colorado chili is very different from the New Mexico chili in that mm -hmm. it grows actually up on a vine as opposed to <coughs> on a plant. Mm -hmm. It's also a lot smaller than uh, the New Mexico chili. So, mm -hmm. you know, the, but the New Mexico chili has so much more flavor. And I think that the more we can protect it right. uh, and promote it, uh, the better off we'll be. But yeah, we I think some relief, I don't know what that looks like. That's right. Uh, that's right. you know, mechanized, you know, exactly. mechanized picking. I don't know. Exactly. And Senator, when you think about it, the numbers are just brutal. 35,000 acres were planted in the 90s, and we're down to 8,400 acres yeah. at this point. Yeah. So the question, Dave brought this up initially, what do we need to do as a state? Is there a water policy well, we can put in place? Is there a... Uh, more advertising money we could throw at these people. Uh, there's something more that has we could certainly do here, it seems. Well, I think you have to remember that mm -hmm. the chili industry is one of the bigger agricultural industries in New Mexico, uh, along with pecans. Right. Uh, the vast majority of um, New Mexico farmers are small farmers, mm -hmm. and they do not receive the subsidies that Chile growers have already received from NMSU, where mm -hmm. there's been extensive research done mm -hmm. on chili growing varieties, hybridization. Um, 
And also they, uh, the chili industry and the pecan industry out of southern New Mexico has a very vigorous water lobby because they are dependent on um, uh, water from Elephant Butte mm -hmm. uh, and the competing demands of uh, Texas. We have to deliver yes. a certain amount of water to Texas every year mm -hmm. and that means less and less uh, water for agriculture. Um, and in many ways, uh, we have to um, ensure that all of our farmers are using efficient irrigation mm -hmm. rather than flooding fields, right. rather than um, using the traditional ways of growing, which have yielded great results in the past, mm -hmm. but are not sustainable yeah. for the future. Yeah. Um, so but this is also about identity, isn't it? It's not just about the definitely. hard commodity that comes in a crate and gets shipped out in a truck. Identity is a much different situation. So I ask again, Dave, is it a money issue? Do we need to backstop these folks and help them out here and help grow the, the, cons I mean, the consumer demand is what I'm getting yes, at here. Absolutely, we need mm -hmm. to grow the consumer demand. But also, it's not just, if something is about money, you know, you're probably on the wrong track. What, but I think the point should be is, is that, you know, the chili is an idea you know, identity of New Mexico and save the chili, save the small farmer, save the small town. Right. That should be a goal. That okay. is government policy that I think is easily implementable. It's going to cost some money, but everything costs money. Mm -hmm. You know, save the chili, save the farmer, save the small town. I think that is a good thing to do. But everyone has to get in on this. The GMIO growers will mm -hmm. probably need to get a little yes. something. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not just yes. the it's hatch not folks. It's just hatch right. folks. Right. Right. Well, yeah. and, you know, while you, you mentioned that the acreage is down, yields are right. actually up. Ah. And mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, mm -hmm. it's important to have those two Why, why is that? Why is the yield up? Uh, it's just more research. more efficient uh, processes, gotcha. you yeah. know. Uh, and the farming process in Chimayo is much is very different than that down in Hatch. Right. Uh, right. right. And, uh, you know, and it was a good chili season. I thought it was. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, I have, uh, you know, chili from Rosales and San Felipe Pueblo in my pre There you go. Yes. Exactly right. <laughs> is, is there, is there a, a real concern here, Senator Feldman, about this at the bottom line? They're going to lose this as an industri industrial crop? I mean... No. I don't think so. Okay. I, think, I was surprised okay. at the whole article. I didn't. I didn't realize, and, and I'm not sure whether this year has been dr dramatically worse than right. any others, or whether it's just a gradual, um, gradual. Not. I don't want to even say decline, but a reaction right. to climate change uh -huh. yes. and to. Um, and we've been, we, I think we've done as a state a very good job in mm -hmm. promoting the chili industry. Certainly in the legislature, there's bills every time mm -hmm. to either do a new uh, slogan, a new, a new subsidy to promote um, New Mexico chili versus Colorado chili. Um, and it's worked. Uh, the demand has increased yes. nationwide, right. internationally, it has increased. Um, so mm -hmm. we, we've got to um, try to put this in perspective. I'm okay. not sure that there's uh, that the Chile industry is, in, as you say, in. But let me Jeopardy. let me take your point to a, a further further place, though. The drought issue. I'm glad you brought it up because that was mm -hmm. mentioned in the article. Right. Of course, is one of the big problems mm -hmm. in climate change. I said yeah. more precisely, we are going to be at ground zero right here in New Mexico for climate change, in the southern part of the right. state, especially in another 30 years. That's it's right. going to be a real problem. The kind of heat. And as the article points out, once you get above a certain amount of degrees at night and during the day, these, these plants don't like it. So, I, you know, do we move indoors? Do we move further north? That was actually suggested in the article <laughs> no, that we're going to have to get to a... You have to, you have you to know, think have about the altitude, the altitude yeah. too. And Hatch is 4,000. Chimayo is, what, 6,000 feet? Sure. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's a factor that you can't change. Right. So I, to me, this whole, um, this whole thing about Chile and New Mexico, this is an asset that we have. Yeah. It's not going away. Mm -hmm. We have to manage it properly. Um, and I think, uh, I think we're doing that uh, with, in terms of water policy, in terms of uh, promotion through our economic development department. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not easy uh, with climate change. Um, and particularly the water situation. Right. But I think the article has brought it back to the forefront. Ever so often, you need to take a look at what you're doing and say, 
are there enhancements we right. need to do? That's right. What can we be preparing for five years from now? That's right. So. That's right. But I also think it's important to recognize there's an opportunity here. You know, we have an asset, the chili growers. We are going to look at the problem. We're going to look for a solution, and we can say to the other states and to other businesses that want to come to New Mexico, we know how to fix things because we looked at this. We understood that it was an asset that we needed. We tried this. It worked. It, or, you know, mm -hmm. it didn't work. We tried something else. I think that's important to say. You know, politics is not just about budgets and everything. Sometimes it's about ideas and leadership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We should take the opportunity to make sure this asset is well protected. Good last note there. Going to take a break before this group comes back to talk about safety and the bus rapid transit system here in Albuquerque. New Mexico in Focus is on Twitter and Facebook. Follow us online to get updates on upcoming shows and tell us what you think about the top news stories of the week. Then tune in because we may share your comments on the line. The Albuquerque Rapid Transit System has been up and running for less than a month. That was since Saturday, November 30th, as a matter of fact. And already, at least of this taping, there have been 10 crashes involving art buses and other vehicles. Now, the city plans to add curbing and those little flexible barriers in some spots. That'll happen within the next six months. Dave Mulryan, they say, now, the two obvious questions, six months, a lot can happen in six months. Is this quick enough, and is that enough to solve the problem completely in your view? Well, I think, yes, we should probably have physical barriers if mm -hmm. that's going to improve safety, there's no doubt. But I also think that, that, you know, all of the interested parties, the mayor, everybody should communicate, don't turn left on Central. I mean, very simple. Mm -hmm. You know, be careful, be aware of the bus. Um, and I think there should be a rule. This is probably not implementable. But if you didn't vote in the city council elections and you haven't ridden on art, you can't complain about it, would be my suggestion. It's um, a very narrow, that's hardcore, dude. I like the way you roll. That's but, all right. Many people as ride art. Right, exactly. But I think that it's very important cute. to recognize that, you know, in, in my business, in public relations and marketing and advertising, right. you've lo they've lost control of this message. Ah. There has been this idea that art is all completely bad. Let me tell you, art is here. I wrote on it. You can look at it. Mm -hmm. It's real. It's not going anywhere. Right. And, and, and I think that, that all of the interested parties need to message correctly. The thing that people aren't recognizing... They may argue that they have. Well, they haven't done it well enough. Okay. They should go back to the drawing board mm -hmm. and try, try again. You know, there's no question. But also, there's, there's advantages here that are not obvious. Mm -hmm. There's a fiber optic bone that goes up there that they put in when they built art. They are now taking that and coming off of that. Everyone's neighborhood is probably full of these big orange or red coils where they're rolling out fiber optic. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. I mean, that can make a tremendous difference in how we go for transportation Appreciate for that the next point. industry. Interesting point, though. Yes. When you think about it, Diane, the idea, how many accidents are en enough, in finger quotes, to make change? Now, there's no way you're going to roll out something like this and have zero accidents. No one's expecting that. There are going to be problems. But to your mind, do, have you seen enough to call for bigger solutions, or what's your sense of it? I think, well, I think it's going to get worse, not better. Okay. So certainly I agree, and, and I think, uh, I'm, I just think those little flexible bendy things are not worth the mm -hmm. money it takes to put them in the, in the street. Mm -hmm. I think if you're going, because we're creatures of habit, and we talked about this earlier, if I go to school this way or wherever the market, and I turn left right, right here off Central, I've been doing it for 40 years, and I, I will instinctively turn left there. Right. And I'll forget until I'm hit right. to look up and see if there's a big bus coming after me. Which I'll add is not a habit that we have is checking your left mirror Mirrors. to see if something's coming up no, on your left. We don't right, have that as a driving habit. No, we don't. Mm -hmm. and so I think uh, some of the things that have been discussed is permanent structures that say you can't go. Right. Be and if you can't physically do it, you know, uh, then you won't turn left. That's right. Another thing is, <coughs> I don't think you can tell, and I was down there the other day, mm -hmm. I don't think you can tell which is the art lane and, and which is my lane, and do I get to turn left here? Right. So I like the idea of painting the art lane a bright color. Yes. Then there's no question. I know I'm not supposed to go there. When I have a chance to turn left, I can turn left. That's right. But once again, we're creatures of habit, and unless you make us change mm -hmm. our attitude, 
we're going to keep reverting back to our habits. That's right. That's right. Senator Feldman, t touch on that too, this, this, the idea of safety and how we take in information and well, how we react you know, in real it, time. I actually thought there would be more accidents, and it was entirely predictable that there would be a lot of them. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a messy buildup and a negative attitude mm -hmm. toward art, so no wonder people are complaining and have been complaining for mm -hmm. the past. But, you know, it brings to mind what a complex... Uh, neuroscience there is behind driving yes. as Thank to you. all Thank of the you. things that are going on there yep. at the same time. Now, there is no inalienable right to turn left. <laughs> and we should, we should acknowledge that and, and do what Diane, I think, is suggesting and the others are make it impossible That's to right. turn left, That's at right. least temporarily, mm -hmm. until these accidents subside and people get used to it. Right. It's a matter of people getting used to it. And it takes time. Yep. Uh, but if you can paint an entire lane pink or something, mm -hmm. uh, if you can prevent left-hand turns from, from occurring at all, traffic will go to another, will go to another street, um, for better or worse, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But uh, the accidents will subside. People don't like public transportation. I think that's the bottom line here. Uh, it takes a, a while to get, for if you're, if you're, you know, believe in the sovereignty of the car, uh, you know, having to yield, having to change is very difficult. Yeah. Tom, your thoughts on this? I mean, the idea, pick up on what Dave was at about the messaging, if you would. Has, has that been enough? I've been hearing from a lot of the city folks at the municipality saying, we're doing everything we can to let people know. We're doing posters, we've got videos, we got everything out there. Yeah, I you mean, know. you know, when it comes to, you know, the tactical response, I think the city's making the best out of a bad situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's a statistician somewhere who will look at the percentage of cars that travel central every day and the right. number of cars, and it'll be below that statistical average, and they'll, right. they'll do high fives. Well, good for them. <laughs> it's still an image issue, yes. and it's, uh, yeah. it's a shame that it is because there are a lot of great businesses that, um, you know, have That's shuttered right. uh, because of the That's art right. construction, and now here's their chance to kind of thrive and I th and I think it will thrive you know it's changing habits it's changing patterns and you know that's gonna be the biggest thing I, I respectfully disagree with uh, Senator Snyder uh, in that I think that the flexible barriers is a good first step okay yeah once you get concrete in yeah right. that's the best step right but uh, you know I think that the city is doing the best job that they can um, you know you figure this administration most of the people in it really didn't have anything to do with art but now they own it mm -hmm. and yeah. um, and so they're doing what they can what do you think, in the sense that uh, Senator Snyder brought up, the idea of painting the lanes, both lanes end to end, as a visual, because you see this all over the world. They're purple, they're fluorescent green, there's all kinds of lanes that are, are a hard color. You can't, you can look three miles down the road, you know exactly what's going to be going on. Is that something we need to get to? Um, and I'll remind, that was in the budget, by the way. Yeah. When this thing was originally put out there, those lanes were supposed to be red from end to end, the way they are at the stop now, <laughs> that was supposed to be the whole darn thing, and that got yanked for budget considerations. Yeah, so. I, I think it's a nice thing. I don't think it's a necessity. Okay. Um, you know, to, uh, <coughs> to uh, Senator Feldman's comments about, you know, it being neuroscience. It's, you know, driving is, you know, there, we have so many distractions right now. Right. Um, there really has to be, I think, paint will help one area. Mm -hmm. um, and it, just how do you decrease distraction? That's right. And I'm not sure that the paint um, will hit that level of sophistication that a lot of folks right. are accustomed to, you know, just driving through Albuquerque and Possibly. dodging potholes. Possibly. So. You know, Dave, when you think about it, I appreciate Tom's point there, the idea that you can uh, trick the mind, so to speak, or right. trick the eye. This is a right. science. I, I appreciate what Senator Feldman said. Right. I've read a lot about this. You can go to the NTSB site. You can go to a lot of places and realize the neuroscience of decision-making behind the wheel right. is very tricky. Right. When you're taking in a lot of inputs and you're looking down the road trying to figure out what you need to do, you got to help folks out. No because question. Let me make one more point here. Sure. I'm sorry to cut you off there. I think we make a mistake where we think people will just get used to it as if we're right. all driving up and down Central every day. Right. A lot of people on Central are not on Central, but once or twice a year right. sometimes. I know friends that never go on Central. Right. They're, they're a tourist. But, but, a tourist, elderly, right. all kinds right. of different but, but folks. But I exactly. think the bigger, bigger question is, yes, we've got science, we love science, we believe in it all. Yeah. But we have, to, we have to look at this as the city and as the officials in charge of the message and say, 
We need a good, solid rapid transit policy because if mm -hmm. we don't, we're just going to be another sunbelt city with traffic jams and good weather. Mm -hmm. And you know, we should look at, forget about that it's not working on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour. We have problems, no question. The bigger <coughs> thing should be we could extend it out to Edgewood if we went mm. down the Old Central. We could get it down to Las Lunas. We could say, you know, we are going for the 21st century. We're not trapped in the 18th century. Right. I mean, we could bring back the horse and buggy and we'd have less fatalities, but we'd have a big mess. Right. And so, you know, we need to look, we need to stop being negative. We need to look on the bright side. We need to say, we're going to play on the white keys, not the black keys. We love art. It's working. More power to us. Wow, I love that. Did you have a reaction to that, Senator? Uh, yeah, I, I think you have to make things simple for people. Yeah. I think we are so overwhelmed yes. with knowledge and energy and doing and thinking. And I'm one of those, like you mentioned, I don't go to Central very often. It, but if that street, that lane is painted bright red mm -hmm. or there are barriers there and I can't turn, even I can understand that. Right. And right, I think, right. you know. Even you. Right. Even me. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, be, but I can, I'll, I will know to not do something stupid. We're out of time on the line on that one. Good stuff this week, you guys. Really good stuff. A quick note. We'll take the holidays off from our Facebook Live sessions that we've been doing every Wednesday, but they'll be back after the new year. So thanks to our panel. We hope you have some time with your family and friends ahead of you. Thanks again for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. We're back next week with our countdown of the year's top stories and an all-journalist line panel. We'll see you then in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.